are you doing today? Are you happy with your life? I hope you are. As your pastor, I'm committed to helping you, every one of you, every person here to find life. Not everybody does find life. We can end up looking for life in the wrong kinds of places. We're conditioned by the advertisers to look for life, uh, look for a meaning and our satisfaction in our jobs, in the houses that we live in, in the cars that we drive, in the size of our bank balance. This morning, if we'll allow him, Jesus Christ will tell us where to find life. In these closing verses of Matthew 10, as we bring this preaching series to a close, we'll discover Jesus' invitation to find life, and it'll be to a very unlikely place that he invites us. We'll come back to that question of where we find life before we finish today. We've been reading Matthew 10 these last weeks. It's what I described two weeks ago as Jesus' evangelism training seminar. He's training his 12 disciples for their work of bringing the gospel to the world. And it's been timely to do that either side of a home mission Sunday, which we had last week. So two weeks ago, we began in Matthew 10. We looked at the basic nature of the task, I think, in the opening verses. And in our passage this morning, verses 16 to 42, we complete the seminar. It's quite long. You maybe got that as Valerie was reading for us. It says a lot of different things, but, but actually I think one main thing. It's on the theme of opposition. I'd suggest that we can sum up Jesus' teaching in these verses under four uh, main headings. Jesus is telling his disciples, you will face opposition tells them why they'll face opposition, what they should do in the face of opposition, and what they shouldn't do in the face of opposition. So first of all, that basic idea that a disciple of Jesus Christ, particularly as they start to, to go and try to share the message of Jesus, they will face opposition. Look at verse 16. The basic warning is there. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. There are people out there who would who would bite you, who would gladly devour you if you go among them in my name. Disciples of Jesus Christ should expect public uh, opposition in the public square. Verse 18, Jesus says, on my account you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. I think if I'd been one of the early followers of Jesus, this might have surprised me a little bit. Why on earth would we run into trouble? Everything, Jesus, that you're teaching, everything that you're doing is so good. Where, where's the controversy? They probably didn't understand the controversy that real commitment to Jesus Christ uh, would cause. They'd have come to see it soon enough, I think, how the values of the kingdom of God clash with the values of traditional Judaism on the one hand, and the values of the pagan Roman Empire on the other. Until recently, Christians in the UK probably didn't expect a whole lot of opposition. We didn't see that following Jesus would give us opposition in the public square. Oh, how that's changed. 
Hardly a week goes by now where we don't hear some story about a Christian facing opposition or critique as they try to live a God-offering life in public. Ask Kate Forbes of the SNP and she will tell you of her experience. So as our society becomes more secular, it's perhaps not surprising that Christians would face opposition in the public square. But if you keep looking at the text carefully, you'll see that the the opposition doesn't end there. Verse 17, be on your guard, says Jesus. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. You're going to find opposition even among this so-called the people of God. Now, we need to be clear before we move on. The opposition which Jesus' Jewish disciples faced in the Jewish synagogue was primarily on the grounds that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. To their fellow Jews who didn't accept this, their, their life, their teaching was blasphemy. That's why they were persecuted uh, in the synagogue in those times. Well then, you might say, now that we're clear on that issue, the particular issue Jesus is addressing in Matthew 10, we can be clear that that's not our issue. So we can move on. Christians surely don't face any opposition from within the church today. Don't don't be so sure about that. Ask the ministers in the Church of Scotland who've made a, a stand and tried to maintain a biblical view of marriage as the church has moved from that position. Ask those currently making the same stand in the Church of England. But actually, ask any minister who's ever put allegiance to Christ and his gospel before his congregations or the culture's idolatries. It's not uncommon to face strong opposition to the cause of Christ within the church, even while it claims his name. So Christians, faithful followers of Jesus Christ, should expect opposition in the public square, in the church, and verse 21, in your own home. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Jesus isn't really going for much of a feel-good factor here today. Hmm? Even less so, verse 34. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This is hard, isn't it? But it's honest. Because some people will accept Jesus Christ and others will reject him, the preaching of the gospel will always divide people in two. The gospel will bring division even into families and households. Jesus is being extremely honest about the cost of discipleship. In verse 22, he had said, you will be hated by everyone because of me. And now he's saying that his disciples may be rejected even by members of their own households. 
This is part of the reality of living a, a life of public discipleship to Jesus. I want to slow down here for a moment. When you're following Jesus, it's a wonderful thing if the members of your family all do so along with you. But not all of us enjoy that ideal situation. For many of us here this morning, a husband or a wife doesn't share our commitment to Jesus Christ. For some of us, our parents wonder what's happened to us, why we got so caught up in that churchy thing. Others of us wish that our growing or our grown children would commit themselves to Jesus. This is a heartbreaking aspect of Christian discipleship. We pray passionately that our whole families will be communities of faith, but in many cases we live for now with a tension that it's simply not yet so. In verses 34 to 36, Jesus has been describing the effect that ministry will have on some households. In verse 37, he addresses his disciples. He makes it clear that nothing must be allowed to divert us from loyalty to him. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy. If what Jesus is saying here sounds difficult and radical to us, please understand that it would have been even more so for his first disciples. Family relationships were everything in that culture. The Old Testament law, the Jewish tradition, they went hand in hand. They went to great lengths to uphold relationships between parents and children. Jesus isn't undermining that. He's not challenging the relationships between parents and children. Please understand that Jesus wants the very best for you and your family. He's simply reminding us that the very best for any family is to put him and not family first. Our families, precious though they are, are not an end in themselves. Family life is important, but it's not fundamental. Our families flourish whenever they find their meaning in the larger family of God. This is a, a crucial topic. It's one that I can't possibly do justice to in a few moments in the middle of a sermon. So I'm going to ask for your patience this morning. I've planned after Easter time to give a, a short topical teaching series on the subject of family, what the Bible teaches about family. That'll give us the opportunity to come back to Jesus' radical teaching in a passage like this. So that's the first thing that Jesus says in this passage. You're to expect opposition. You'll find it in the world, in the church, and in your home. Gracious teacher that he is, Jesus then answers the why question. He tells us why we'll face opposition. He does it a number of times throughout the passage, but he's always making the same basic point. Look at verse 18. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings. Verse 22, you'll be hated by everyone because of me. Have you spotted the pattern? On my account, because of me. It's all about Jesus. 
followers of Jesus are hated because of Jesus. It's our likeness to Jesus, it's our commitment to the agenda of his kingdom that puts us on a collision course with people who hate Jesus and the values of his kingdom. By the way, whenever I see Christians facing opposition, real or imagined, I sometimes wonder whether the opposition they face is really as a result of their commitment to Jesus Christ. Sometimes it looks to me as if Christians are fighting battles in Jesus' name that Jesus wouldn't fight. Sometimes it looks to me as though they just love fighting, full stop. We need to be wise about these things. And we can say more about that in a moment. In verses 24 and 25, Jesus elaborates on this basic principle that disciples face opposition because of him. It's because we're his apprentices. Do you remember this? We've talked a lot about this in recent times here at Hamilton Road. A disciple is an apprentice of Jesus. We're learning from Jesus how to be like him, to become like him. If we're doing that, if we're becoming like him, we shouldn't be surprised if we're treated like him. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. Actually, Jesus tells us that we should consider that a real privilege. Verse 25, it's enough for the student to be like their teacher, for the servant to be like their master. He encourages us to expect the same kind of critique and accusation that he Found. If the head of the house has been, co be, been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? I find this idea that an, that an apprentice of Jesus will be treated like Jesus very interesting and very challenging. Think for a moment how, the, how Jesus was treated by religious leaders. They said he had the wrong kinds of friends, dirty sinners. They said he had the wrong kind of relationship with the law, too much breaking of the rules. They said he had the wrong kind of relationship with their tradition. He didn't respect the old ways enough. He was bringing in these new ways. They said he had the wrong ideas about power when he said that the last will be first and the first will be last and so on. Even whenever he did things which the religious leaders couldn't refute, they attributed his power to Satan. They said, you're, you're of the devil. This is how the religious people of Jesus' day treated him. And Jesus tells his disciples, those who are true to him, that they shouldn't expect it any different. So, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you find that religious people are giving you a hard time and that in some cases it's for these same reasons that they gave Jesus a hard time, don't despair. You just might be on the right track. Keep following Jesus. So Jesus told his disciples that they would face opposition. He told them why they would face opposition. Because those who are becoming like him will be treated like him. 
A third thing Jesus shares with his disciples in this passage, he tells them what they should do in the face of opposition. He doesn't go super deep. He just mentions these things in passing. So that's what we're going to do. Five things very quickly. Verse 16, be as shrewd as snakes. Snakes are known for their wisdom. Jesus says that we're to be wise. Pray for yourself for wisdom as you represent Jesus in public life. I'm sure Kate Forbes, I mentioned her earlier, I'm sure she prays every day at the moment for wisdom to get through the next 24 hours in what she's engaged in. Pray for our school principals who are trying to shape the culture of their school in a time when pressures are on them from all roads. Pray for anybody who has responsibility to, to shape the culture for God's glory. Still in verse 16, a second thing. Christians are to be innocent as doves. When we're facing opposition, let's, let's try to be clear that it's for the right reasons, will we? Facing critique in your workplace as a Christian, just maybe because you're doing rubbish work, not, not on the grounds of being a Christian. Don't, don't conflate those two. Don't mix them up. Falling out of favor with people because I'm a downright pain in the neck has very little to do with carrying the name of Jesus Christ. Let's not confuse these two. Jesus wants his followers to be innocent. He doesn't mean perfect. He means to be good people of good reputation. We're to be wise, we're to be godly. Verse 17, we're to be on our guard. Don't be taken by surprise. I think that's probably one of the main purposes of this teaching of Jesus. He just wants us to know that, that when we go into the public square, not everybody's going to love us. Be ready for opposition. A fourth thing Jesus wants his disciples to do is to be ready to speak. Look at verse 19. But when they arrest, you don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. This is a really important principle in Scripture. Very often, God gives his people the words they need to say. Maybe classically in one of the first times is Moses. Do you remember Moses? He's been asked to go to Pharaoh, the most important person on the face of the earth, and to confront him with a hard message. He says, I'm, I'm afraid, I can't do it. And the Lord says, I'll go with you, I'll speak for you. We need to pray for those who face opposition that they'll know the Spirit of God speaking the Word of God through them. Verse 22. Jesus tells his disciples they need to be willing to persevere till the end. He promises the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus isn't sugarcoating anything for his disciples here. He doesn't try to protect them from the harsh realities that lie ahead. He wants them to know the truth. I don't know how much you know. Some of these 12 gave their lives for Jesus. Throughout the history of the church, millions have been put to death because they love Jesus. For many people today, their commitment to Jesus Christ is still costing them their lives. We'll take a moment to, to pray for suffering Christians later on in their service.
We have thought for a moment about what Jesus wants his disciples to do in the face of opposition. He wants them to be shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves, be on their guard, to be ready to speak the truth and to be willing to persevere. I wonder how you feel after all that. I wonder how you feel listening to this whole passage and sermon. Do you feel worried, fearful, hopeful that Jesus won't say the same kind of thing to you? Well, that brings us to our fourth lesson that Jesus gave his disciples as they faced opposition. It brings us to the one thing that Jesus asked them not to do. He repeats it at least three times, probably more. So it must have been the most important thing of all. Jesus says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Look with me, verse 26. Don't be afraid of them. For there's nothing concealed that won't be disclosed or hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, spread in the daylight, what is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the mountaintops. Jesus is telling them that this, this messianic gospel, this, this message that he's, he's the true king, it, it's shrouded in a mystery now. People are scratching their heads trying to work it out. He says a time is coming after the resurrection when I want you to go and shout that from the rooftops this message that Jesus is Lord. Look at verse 28. He tells them again, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of people who persecute you. I wonder if you spotted that difference yet in your own life. The kind of harm that people can do you that stays only on the outside of you. And the harm that, that goes inside you. Jesus asks his followers to entrust themselves to the one who guards their souls. The one who carries them not just through time, but into eternity. When he holds us, we're good. Verses 29 and 30, he gives us two beautiful images to reinforce God's loving care. God knows when a sparrow falls to the ground, how much more aware is he going to be of, of you as you follow Jesus? Even the numbers of hair on our heads are covered. Now, everybody has their own theological questions. This is one of mine. Lord, if you know, what are you doing about it? The, the metaphor is not there to help us think about our, our hairstyles. It's there to talk about the depth of his knowledge. How intimately he knows us. He knows everything. Every little thing about you. And he loves you. I hope you find great comfort in that. Don't be afraid, he says. Do not be afraid. Friends, when we take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, we will face opposition. Jesus knows this. He tells us this. But yet he sends us out with this threefold refrain ringing in our ears. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 
I began this morning by asking you whether you were happy with your life, and I told you that Jesus invites us to find life in the most unlikely of places. With this, I close. Look at verse 39. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Here it is, friends, the crux of it all, the paradox of Christian discipleship. While we persist in searching for life on our own terms, for looking for our meaning and our satisfaction in our jobs, in our houses, in our cars, in whatever amount of education our children pick up along the way, while we pursue that kind of a life, life itself will be slipping through our fingers. You see, there is no real life apart from Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He came, he said, to bring us life to the full. Well, we might say, Jesus, if that's the case, if you are the life, if you've come to give us life to the full, where, how do we find that life? If I've got to lose my life to find life, what does that mean? Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jesus has already answered that question for us. Verse 38. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Taking up our cross. Sometimes people talk as though their sore back or their varicose veins was the cross they had to bear. That's, that's how we most commonly use that phrase nowadays. That's not what Jesus Christ is talking about. Taking up our cross has nothing to do with our, our personal problems, the difficulties in life that we, we do have to bear. Taking up our cross means entering into radical obedience to Jesus Christ. It means dying. Me dying to myself so that I can live for him. It means walking with Jesus Christ on the Calvary road, the road that goes to the cross. We tend to think of the cross of Jesus Christ as something that was exclusively for him. Jesus' atoning work on the cross is entirely unique. Let me be clear about that. But Jesus thinks of the cross as something that's for each one of us. Something for each of us to endure. You see, Jesus died to create a band of crucified followers. People who are dead to themselves and their agendas so that they might be alive for him and for his agenda. People who are willing to lose the, the tiny, selfish little life that they might otherwise create for themselves so that they might find themselves and find a huge life in the kingdom of God. Are you ready to lose your life so that you can find life? Are you ready to take up your cross 
and to follow him. Let's pray.